All righty, so great. Well, come on back and grab your Bible. Grab your Bible. And uh, do you have a Bible over here? Everybody have a Bible? Good. Yes, ma'am, or yes, sir. And you got uh, open to John chapter 10, I hope. And if you need a Bible, raise your hand and uh, Helen will get you one. If you need a Bible, raise your hand and Helen will get you one. We got one, yeah, get one for Tony there. And um, if you have a journal, ask Andy. You should open that up. That was our Psalm lesson yesterday about recording events. Uh, if you don't have a journal, come up here. I'll give you a piece of paper. And you can take notes. Um, let me see if I can find this. I'm going to show you something here. I've got my, yeah, here we go. Yeah. To complement what we've been going through in John chapter 10, we've been studying about the door of the sheepfold. And also, we've been studying about the great shepherd. Now, we're in John chapter 10, but there's a new book that we put out downstairs. It's new for us. It's not a new book. But if you, you don't have this in your home, you're going to want to get this book. And uh, you could use it as a family devotion. I think there's about 15 of them downstairs. Uh, you can just put a little money in the envelopes that are provided down there. Or if you can't, you know, you don't have the money, you just take it. But it's what's called a shepherd looks at Psalm 23. A shepherd looks at Psalm 23. It's by a guy named Philip Keller. That's not Tim Keller. This is Philip Keller. Philip Keller is a rancher and a scientist. And he writes a perspective on Psalm 23 that I guarantee you've never thought of. And um, <laughs> uh, Pastor Joe Foch at Calvary Chapel Philly described another book this way. Uh, but this book falls in this category. This is medicine for the soul right here. And so uh, th there's about 15 of those downstairs. If uh, you want to grab one, uh, they're down there afterwards. So, um, okay, so open up to Psalm, uh, or excuse me, <laughs> John chapter 10. And we have been going through the book of John, of course. And the book of John is a unique gospel of the four gospels. It's unique. 92%, this is fascinating, 92% of the material that's contained in John is not found in the other Gospels. Are you catching that? 92% of the material in the Gospel of John is original to the Gospel of John, which means that the Holy Spirit, through this man named John, had a specific purpose to write to us. He actually just tells us like it is. He doesn't hide the ball. I don't know. I get in trouble sort of for saying some things, but I'm going to say it anyway. I don't enjoy evangelism that hides the ball. What am I hiding? What are we hiding? We love the Lord because he loved us. He came to save us from our sins. Why would we dance around the issue? 
I don't enjoy evangelism that hides the ball, if you know what I'm talking about. I'm not trying to trick you or debate you into the kingdom of God because it's not my job anyway. It's my job to sow seeds. It's the Lord's job to save people. It's our job to receive by faith. Amen? So John here, this fisherman, apparently a wealthy fisherman, he had a big business. Dad set up a big business for the sons, and they they did well. Well, anyway, in the 20th chapter of John, he just goes ahead and he just tells you by the Holy Spirit why this book was written, that you, look at this, folks. If there's somebody in here today, and I asked you, or we asked you, anybody in here asked you, are you going to heaven? And you went like this. You know that thing that everybody in Western world or, what, uh, you know, the United States, I don't know. I mean, you know, I feel like I've done better than some people. You know, I'm better than Stalin or some of the people that they say or whatever. They pick out a mass murderer, which is not really saying much. But anyway... But see, John here, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the one who is predicted in the Old Testament. He is the Christ, the predicted one. And he's the Son of God. He's the Godson. This Jesus who came to earth around 2,000 years ago was fully man, but he was fully God in nature and essence. And that's what we believe. And when you believe that, and when that word believe there, that means put your whole life on the line. You, you just give up your whole life for that. Why? Because you have a penalty that you could never pay. And the penalty is a death that's efficacious to God the Father, and there was only one who could do that. That's Jesus. And when you believe that and trust in that and lay your life down for him, you have life in his name. So see, here's what I got to tell you and just be frank with you. We have millions and millions of people around the world that are walking around with physical life and are spiritually dead. And maybe that's one of us sitting here today. And if it is, John wants you to know, and I want you to know, and we want you to know that if you give your life to Jesus, who's the Son of God, Jesus the Christ, and you trust him and believe him, you'll have life. And that just goes on throughout this entire book. And here we come to chapter 10. We did the first half to chapter first half of chapter 10 last week. There's so many themes and layers to the book of John. You understand that? There's almost every chapter, there's somebody who is believing and somebody who isn't believing. Somebody who surrenders their life to Christ and some of the people in almost every chapter get right up to the cusp of believing in Christ and they go away. And what a sad thing that is. There's this layer of light versus darkness. We see that a lot in the book of John. There's this other layer. Here's one of them. There's seven I am statements of John. We just covered one last week. I'm the door of the sheep. I'm the great shepherd. Or covered a couple. You understand that? We see in all of these seven I am statements that Jesus is going to give us through the book of John, we see 
God manifested in the flesh. Because when you go back to Exodus 3, Exodus chapter 3, you need to know this, students. It's a very important verse or chapter. Moses is asking himself, or Moses is, excuse me, debating with God. It's so funny. Lord, you know, the the Lord comes and, you know, God comes and says, you know, I want you to lead the people. And he's like, oh, I can't lead the people. No way. I can't even talk very well. And he goes, well, I'll give you Aaron, your big brother. He talks great. He'll go along with you. He'll be your mouthpiece. Oh, uh, yeah, but I don't even know who to tell people you are. So I'm disqualified. And the Lord says, tell them I am. And it's an eternal word. It's an eternal phrase, meaning there was never any beginning. There was never going to be any end. And in the book of John, there's seven I am blank. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the great shepherd. Boom, boom, boom. And all these I am statements to show us the character and nature of God through Jesus. Amazing. Well, there's another layer. He does all these signs. And in the book of John, he calls them signs. He doesn't call them miracles. He calls them signs. And he does it because of this, I think. Because there's a spiritual truth behind the sign. There is the physical thing that happens, that there's people getting healed and all that, water to wine, healing of a nobleman's son, the curing of a, man, a paralytic at Bethesda, and now we're a feeding of the 5,000, working on, or walking on the Sea of Galilee, giving of sight to the blind, raising of Lazarus from the dead, uh, miraculous uh, uh, you know, uh, catch of fish. And then, of course, raising himself from the dead. But the reason there's a sign there is because when you go and you look at every one of those miracles, not only did the miracle happen and Jesus has compassion, there's something behind the sign that gives us an amazing spiritual truth. It's like the stop sign. I mean, they don't write out the uh, Pennsylvania Revised Code on the stop sign, you know, come to complete stop, uh, look right, look, you know, all that sort of thing. No, they just have a red sign that says stop, but behind it, there's a whole bunch of meaning. If you go through it, you pour through it, there's going to be some lights and somebody's going to come get you. And before you know it, you'll be in front of a magistrate paying a hefty bill. Jan should know. <laughs> we have an appointment here in a couple of weeks. <laughs> oh, Thursday, Thursday. <laughs> okay, okay. You cut that out of the tape, okay? <clears throat> but anyway, so there's these signs, and it's multi layered. And the last time we were here, folks, the last time we were here, Jesus told us something about himself. He said this I am, verse 7, chapter 10, I'm the door of the sheep. Now remember, in the towns, they had a porter at the door, a person who would open the door of the sheepfold so that the sheep would come in and there would be the shepherds and they would call out the sheep in the morning that the sheep would come out. But when they went out in the countryside, on the hillside, it was just a bare structure and there was no porter. And so who became the door? The shepherd, he would just put his feet in the door, uh, door frame, is that what it is? And he would just sit down and he would sleep there at night. It's beautiful. Jesus is saying, nobody comes in or out except for I uh, let them. There's only one way. And he's always talking about, he's talking about 
protection and knowing his sheep and being safe and secure. I mean, you go around this world, you hardly, if you're, uh, you know, if you're paying attention at all, in, in human terms, safe and secure, folks. I don't, have you been reading or listening to the news? It's one right after the other, one right after the other, a catastrophe, shooting. And you're like, wow, there's no safety and security. And then Jesus comes along and says, if men kill the body, it doesn't matter. You're going to be with me your whole life, eternal life, forever. You're going to be with me. I mean, what could man do to us? No one wants to, you know, uh, be you know, uh, irresponsible and be some sort of martyr when you don't have to be. And yet, what if it happens? You'll be with the Lord. And so he's here, it gives us safety and security. But then he goes on and he says, I'm the good shepherd. And what's fascinating about this you can't get this chapter unless you know the prior chapter. And the prior chapter is that the religious people are ticked off. They're mad. The religious people are ticked off because Jesus did something. He, he healed a man, and he healed him again on the Sabbath. And it broke their man-made traditions, and it's sickening. Religious, religion without relationship is sickening. It's brutal. It's angry. It's mean. It's vindictive. And we see it all throughout the book of John. That's religion. That's external stuff. And, and they're mad. And, you know, Jesus tells them now, he's speaking to them in chapter 10, and he says, you know that there are true shepherds and there are false shepherds. And the true shepherds uh, do this. They lay their lives down for the sheep. A false shepherd is upset when his religious apple cart or her religious apple cart is upset or, you know, knocked over so that the thing that they've established is being violated. Sickening, really. And he gives it to him. I mean, he basically says, you folks are thieves and robbers and sheep don't hear them. Now, I failed to read you something, and hopefully I can find it because it's on my phone. Yeah, here it is. D.L. Moody gave this illustration, speaking of shepherd who follow the good shepherd, or sheep who follow the good shepherd, and sheep who don't hear his voice. Listen to this. D.L. Moody gave this illustration to a friend who is traveling in the east, in the east, excuse me. He heard that there was a shepherd who still kept up the custom of calling his sheep by name. He went to the man and said, hey, let me put on your clothes and take your crook and I'll call them and see if they'll come to me. And so he did. And he called one sheep, Mina, Mina, the name for the sheep, apparently. But the whole flock ran away from him. Then he said to the shepherd, will none of them follow me when I call? And the true shepherd said, oh, yes, sir. Some of them will. The sick sheep will follow anybody. So there's a great lesson here as we continue on. Is that Jesus tells us in chapter or verse 14 of chapter 10, I'm the good shepherd and I know my sheep. You know, when you speak to highfalutin theological types, 
they often speak of, well, where's personal, you know, you know how uh, you share a tract or a message with somebody and you say, it's a personal relationship between Jesus and I. There's a lot of theological people that say, well, show me where in the Bible it says it's a personal relationship. But I've got to tell you here, look at this. I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep. The word for know there is intimate. They're, they know them. They, they know their name. Don't you like when people know your name? I'm bad at it, by the way. So if I do it to you, forgive me. But don't you love it when somebody knows your name? You think, wow, that person took the time to know me. Well, Jesus knows his sheep. He knows your name. He knows your likes. He knows your dislikes. He knows your character. He knows your weakness. He likes your uh, positives. He, he knows it. He knows his sheep. I know my sheep and am known by my own. The sheep know him. Fascinating. When, how do we know uh, Jesus? Well, we study his word. And we get to know Jesus through his word. And the child of God studies the word of God and the Holy Spirit of God comes and brings truth to us. Yeah, you see. And so it's very important that we be studiers of the word and great discerners of the word. Why? Not so we can go around and tell people how much we know and, and debate them and beat them in an argument and all that. No. So we can rightly divide the word and we can discern what's of the Lord and what's not. Isn't that beautiful? I know my sheep and am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep and other sheep, which uh, I have, which are not of this fold. Them I also must bring, and they'll hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. And that's beautiful, because the Bible tells us that Jesus first went to the Jewish people, but then he opened it up for us Gentiles. And we're the other flock. Isn't that beautiful? Okay. There becomes a division among the Jews because of these sayings there in verse 19. And many of them said he has a demon and is mad. That's always the way of somebody who's religious, external, unrepentant. It's this. It's always when you challenge them with, look, look, here's what I think they, they don't like. Grace. The grace of God. When you challenge them with grace and mercy, and I don't think grace means licentiousness, but when you challenge them with grace and mercy, what comes flying back? Name-calling and tearing people down. Why do you listen to him? And others said, these are not the words of one who has a demon. Oh, beautiful. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Now, you must know this. Turn with me to Isaiah 35. And this just came into my head, so I'm guessing it's there. So let's see if it is. Isaiah 35. Yep. Oh, praise the Lord. <clears throat> there it is. This is a talking of the future glory of Zion and speaking of what the Messiah is going to do. And look at this. The Messiah, verse 3, is going to strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Uh, Say to those who are fearful hearted, be strong, don't fear. 
Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come, watch this, and save you. Now, I want you to see this next verse. Then the eyes of the blind will be open. And the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Now, we're not going to study it today, but do you remember the time Jesus healed the man that couldn't hear? He actually, it says, he actually took his finger, and what did he do? He put it inside his ear. And the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped, and the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb sing, for water shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. In other words... If you were living in New Testament times, are you all tracking with me? If you're living in New Testament times, you were expecting, because of the scriptures, especially if you were Jewish, a Messiah who was going to open the eyes of the blind. What did we just read two weeks ago and study? He healed a blind man. So what was Jesus doing? Remember, there are signs. He was having compassion on a person that he sees needed compassion, that he saw needed compassion. But what else was he saying? I'm the one that's predicted in the Old Testament. Get it? Everybody with me? Now watch this. It was the Feast of Dedication, verse 22, in Jerusalem, and it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Now, this is the only place that this feast is mentioned in the Bible. You're going to want to write that down if you're a student of the Bible. This is the only place that this feast is mentioned in the Bible. Why? It's not mentioned in the Old Testament. Why is that? Because the Feast of Dedication is a feast that you all know called Hanukkah or the Festival of Lights, or the Feast of Lights, or the Feast of the Rededication of the Temple. Here's what happened. Why wouldn't it be in the Old Testament? Because the feast never, the feast, or the reason that they commemorate this feast happened in between the Testaments. Are you catching me? From about 167 to 164 BC, there was a Syrian king who was infatuated with Greek culture. His name was Antiochus Epiphanes. I might not even be saying that right. But listen, I haven't had much sleep lately. (laughs) Anyway, this uh, uh, Syrian king came into Jerusalem, and he did some dastardly things, folks. I mean, he, he, he suspended for the Jews circumcision. You're like, why are you telling me that? Because if a mom was caught circumcising their baby, they hung them and killed them upside down in the streets. They slaughtered 80,000 Jewish people during this time when Epiphanes came. They took over the temple area and they desecrated it. They did some really dastardly things, really evil things in there. A couple of the things that they did is they sent up a, um, a statue of Zeus in the Holy of Holies or in the Holy Temple area. They actually sacrificed a pig or put pig's blood in the temple area, an unclean animal to the Jews. You understand? They did some bad stuff and way more than this. And Somebody ought to name a company after this, 
But a guy named Judas Maccabees, I'm laughing because somebody did name a company after this here in the fellowship. My jokes are getting bad. But anyway, <laughs> Judas Maccabees, he, he, he was the Jewish man who uh, revolted against this and overthrew the Syrians here. And what he did was he rededicated the temple. He cleansed the temple. He rededicated it. And one of the great things that they did was they relit the big candelabra. And I don't know if you remember this, but in the Old Testament, you had to have certain consecrated oil in order to burn on those candelabras. And they only had enough for one day. But miraculously, the candelabra burned for eight days. And so to this day, Hanukkah, you know Hanukkah, right? The festival of lights. It's a time are, uh, you know, all over in uh, Israel. And uh, it's celebrated right around the same time as Christmas, what's happening. So, why do I go through all of that with you? Why, why should I uh, go through all of that with you? Listen, when the Jewish people would celebrate Hanukkah, Think about what they were doing. They were celebrating the fact that there was this oppressive regime that came in and destroyed their culture, tried to destroy their culture, and God saved them. You understand? And what is happening in the New Testament in John right now? As we're reading, or actually it was back then, but in the story of John, what's happening? Who lives and rules in Israel? Rome. And so every year at this time, there would be this messianic fervor. And Rome would get a little nervous because they didn't want anything to mess up the deal that Rome had going. Are you guys tracking with me? The reason this is important is their messianic fervor was, oh, wonderful, the Messiah. He's going to come and overthrow. I bet you he's going to overthrow the Roman government. And Jesus comes down And speaks to them and says, he doesn't say, look, the Lord, man, he's amazing. What they expected him to say was, I'm the mighty warrior, the Messiah. I'm going to lead you and we're going to overthrow these stupid Romans. That's what they wanted from the Messiah. He comes and he says, I'm the good shepherd. He loves you, his people. And his revolution, if you will, is that he's going to take people who can't live up to a godly standard, save them from their sins by paying the penalty for their sins, then give us new life, and we depend on his resource and life to live the life that God calls us to live. Well, you guys don't get it. You must not get it because I don't know how you were when you were growing up, but I would come into church and I would say, oh, shoot, I'm just going to learn all the rules in the Bible and I'm going to do them, man. And then, you know, I'd go out the door and my brother would trip me or something and, you know, we'd fight or, you know, I mean, you know, I was a bad boy and I'd just leave it at that. 
And I had no ability to live the life that God called me to. And, and then someone shared the gospel with me. And uh, you find out that the Christian life is not living up to rules. It's receiving what Christ has already done. It's not do, do, do. It's done, done, done. And now because it's done, you live laying your life down for others because his love flows in and through you to a dying and hurting world. That's why God calls you and says, don't get caught up in stupid disagreements and jealousies. You're, you're just missing the point. <laughs> Work all those things out because I got something bigger and greater. And something bigger and greater is that people's lives spiritually are at stake. And I want you to all row in the same direction and go and share the gospel until I come back. And people will know that you truly care for them because you'll love them. You won't just count them as a notch on your belt as you share with them. No, you'll love them and they'll know you by your love. And that's this. And they were expecting this messianic fear, uh, fever of an overthrow of the Romans, but the writer here wants to tell us that despite that, they were misguided. And Jesus then was walking in the temple in Solomon's porch. It's on the eastern side of the Temple Mount, and it's often where people go. If you look in Acts 3, Peter and John healed somebody, and there was a big to-do right there in Solomon's porch. And it also says, I think, in Acts chapter 5, that oftentimes, isn't this interesting, the local church in Jerusalem met in Solomon's porch, which I love. Don't you love this? Take this and write this down and remember it. The church shouldn't stay in their walls. Yes, let's come here and let's get ironed up or sharpened up. There we go. <laughs> sharpened up and rejuvenated in the Lord and praise his name like God's called us to. We should not forsake assembling together, but we shouldn't stay in a Christian cocoon and be scared. Ooh, people were out there. No, we should take it to the people. They did. They went right up into the temple and met. That's pretty brazen and bold in a good way. Well, anyway, Jesus is in this porch, and it's winter. And the Jews surround him and say to him, how long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. When they say Christ, they want to know. They're asking, are you the one who was predicted in the Old Testament? Are you the Messiah? Now, look, folks, this is sort of disingenuous. Because if you've been following along with us, I mean, come on, a man born blind receives sight. And when in, in chapter 9, when the uh, healed man is excommunicated, Jesus, verse 33, hears that they had cast him out and says, do you believe in the Son of God? They say, or excuse me, he says to him, do you believe in the Son of God? And he answered, who is he, Lord, that I may believe? And he says, you've both seen him, and it's he who's talking with you. This man believed, and, they, and he worshiped them. And for, Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world. By the way, any good religious Jew knew that God was in charge of judgment. But in this book, Jesus tells the people, God has given me all judgment, which means he's claiming to be God. And here he says, 
uh, for judgment I have come into this world that those who do not may see and that those who see may be blind. You read that as a Western American and go, oh, good old Jesus, he healed a blind man. Yes, that is great. He did heal a blind man. But what he's also telling you, Isaiah 35, is I am the Messiah. Are you catching this? You know when it says that he walked on the water, in the Old Testament, that's one of the characteristics of God, that he would walk on the waves. Everything Jesus did was pointing to this. Then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said, are we blind also? What? what? That's my kind of sarcasm right there. I mean, I love it. They're saying, and this is probably how I'd be, come on, folks, seriously, we're the teachers of the law. We're the religious people. We have robes. We burn incense. We give money. Are we also blind? And Jesus gives it to him and says, you're, you're blind. Here, here's the point. Here's the point when you turn, the, uh, the, uh, turn back to what we're studying here as we expeditiously get through the third verse. If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. This is disingenuous. If you study every chapter of John, almost in every chapter, he's already told them plainly. But they don't want their religious system to be upset. Man, it's so silly. And Jesus answered and said, listen, I told you and you don't believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. So not only has he told them, what does Jesus do? to get people to believe. He speaks his words. How do we believe? Faith comes by hearing, and he, by hearing what? Not great pithy sayings or moral sayings on social media. Throw that crap away. It's by hearing the word of God and understanding and believing it and trusting Jesus in it. So I told you and don't believe. And the works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. Walking on the water, healing the blind man. You all are tracking with me, right? But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. Oh my. You know what I do when I read that, read that right there? You know what I do? I go, man, I want to be a sheep that knows Jesus' voice and hears from him. That's what I say. But watch. Lord, here, here's what everybody's going to hopefully ask right now. Am I one of his sheep? And Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Let me ask you something. You've you got to really tune in here. I, I know I'm boring, but listen to this. Do you know the voice of Jesus? How do you know the voice of Jesus? Well, you study his word, and when the word hits you, the truth of the Holy, the Holy Spirit hits you with the truth of the word, and you know that you know that you know that that's true. He speaks to you through his word. Do you hear his voice, and do you know Jesus, and are you following him? That's it. If you're not... The Bible says today is the day of salvation. You want to just say, yes, Lord, I'll follow you. And, but before you do that or consider it, here's what the Bible says we're to do. We're to lay down our life for his. 
We're to take up our cross daily, which means we die to ourself and move on in life by his power and resource, which is resurrection power. Do you hear his voice and do you know him and do you follow him? Watch this, watch this. You're like, come on, lay down my life. Give up my life for his. Well, watch this, here it comes. And I will give them eternal life. (laughs) The minute you surrender your life to Christ, you're seated in the heavenly places. You're there. You might be living here, but your spot's reserved. You're there. You already have eternal life. By the way, folks, let's think about this. Everybody's going to have eternal life. It just depends on where we're going to spend it. Separated from God in hell or with God in heaven. So he gives us eternal life, the life that's with him, that's knowing him, that's a relationship with him. And watch this, we'll never perish. Death for us, listen to this. Guys, gals, I mean, keep care of your bodies. Do eat right, stop eating owls so much, and, <laughs> and, and just and quit going there every day. But anyway... Uh, Take care of your body, but listen to this. Death for us physically is just the beginning. It's the doorway to forever with the Lord. We don't fear it. We sang about it today. There's no sting in death for the Christian. I give them eternal life, and they'll never perish, and we have unbelievable security. Listen, nobody is ever going to take any of us out of the hand of Jesus by force. No one. Nothing could. You have complete security. Even in a world that's crashing down with things like COVID and anxiety and uh, uh, school shootings and all that sort of thing. And yes, we want to work to eliminate uh, those things. But listen, we're secure in Jesus. Because we have the glory of an indestructible life. Oh my. You hearing this? You have eternal life. You have a life that it will never perish. And you are secure in the Lord. Now, I want you to see something. Where else would you rather be? Watch this than in the hands of Jesus. Think about what the hands of Jesus have done. Well, the Bible tells us that he was a builder. I don't know that he was a carpenter. The word is builder. There's not a lot of wood in Israel. But anyway, that's for you to decide. But he was something, he was somebody that, so he was a, had strong hands. He had a strong work ethic. He was a strong man, but he was tender. He was very tender. And you know this, he would go around and actually physically touch people who nobody would physically touch at the time, lepers. And he would heal them. And he had compassion on them. So you have strong hands, tender hands, hands of compassion. You have hands, remember, 
In John, when the girl was caught in adultery, he stooped down and wrote something with the finger of God on the floor. He was uh, 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 hands of mercy. Where else would you rather be than in the hands of Jesus? And we all are in Christ. So nobody could snatch us out of his hand. And my father who has given uh, them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hands. I want you to see something here that's so tremendous. I wonder if you've ever thought about this. Somebody recite for me John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he, his only begotten son, good job, not perish but have everlasting life. Uh, For God so loved the world, God, listen, God gave his son to us. But I want you to see something here. For those who are the sheep of Jesus, who follow Jesus, the followers of Jesus, Christians, watch this, the Father gives them to Jesus. Are you catching that? You must not be catching that because no one's catching it. I mean, he gave the son so that we would be saved, but then he gives us to the son. Oh, it's so intimate. I mean, it's so wonderful. My father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. And then he does something tremendous here. Let's not all get confused and do something that's heretical. He says, I and my father are one. Here's what it, why I say this. He uses not the masculine for the word one. He's not saying here that the father and the son are the same person. He's saying that the father and the son, who are different persons, are the same in nature and essence. They're one. You see, there's some groups who think there's one person. And that's not what the Bible teaches us. I and my Father are one. One in nature and essence. One in nature and essence. Here, he just plainly tells them, doesn't he? He plainly tells them, you've asked, I've answered. Come on, folks. I and my Father are one. My dad was a Jehovah's Witness growing up. Thank goodness he got out of that. But he used to say to me when I first examined the claims of Christ, show me somewhere in there that he says he's God. Well, I'd say that's it. I and my father are one. Then the Jews, verse 31, took up stones again to stone him. This is one of the several times here in the book of John that this has happened. Why would they take up stones? Because in Leviticus, the great book of Leviticus, 24, verse 16, for blasphemy, a person could be stoned. So they take up stones and Jesus answered them and said, many good works I have shown you from my father. For which of the works do you stone me? It's just sheer perfection. Think about this. They're getting ready to kill him, guys, gals, with some stones. You ever heard somebody get hit with a rock? Yeah, my brother used to throw them at me, so I, I heard it plenty of times, but in the wrong way, I guess. It's not a pleasant sound. It's just bad. And he says, listen, 
Oh, wait a minute. For what good works are you going to stone me? I mean, are you really going to stone me for healing the blind, for uh, uh, lifting up the lame? Are you really going to stone me for that? Now catch, just hold on here. And the Jews answered him saying, for a good work we don't stone you, but for blasphemy and you because... And because you being a man, make yourself God. Now watch. Okay, wake up. Here is what the United States does all over. If you do good works, people will love you. Christians come. They build a school. Oh, that's so amazing. Hospital. Wow. Bring Jesus into the equation and see what happens. Cancel culture. As soon as you talk about Jesus, you're a whatever, you're a whatever, and it's never changed. Here it is. They go, we, we're okay, we're okay with your good works. We actually like your good works, but we're not really upset about that. We're upset because you're calling yourself God, and it's the same way today. Bring Jesus into the equation, and people get mad and vicious. Why is that? Because the enemy of our souls is at work in the world. And the name of Jesus is from which they or he flees. Well, Jesus answered them. And this is a fascinating. I won't go through it too much. But isn't it written in your law? <laughs> Jesus know the, knew the word. Isn't that great? I said, you are gods. Psalm 82. In Psalm 82, judges. Look, lawyers. Judges, magistrates were being bad in Psalm 82. But the word that they use in Psalm 82 in the Hebrew means, with a little g, gods. In fact, in Exodus 21 and in Exodus 22, when Moses is having people with the pro or problems with the people, the judges of the time are called gods. And here Jesus says, wait a minute, isn't it your, written in your law, you are gods? And what they're talking about in the Old Testament is God appoints people to have to make hard decisions in life because other people can't get along, and they're called judges. We still have them today, by the way. They're down right down in downtown. You can go in there and solve your, all your problems. I'm kidding. But what Jesus' uh, uh, argument it is, he says, Do you say of him, verse 36, whom the Father sanctified, and oh, excuse me, verse 35. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the son of God? He, <laughs> the Lord is just saying right here, watch. This phrase, gods, is used in the Bible. Don't get all upset when I say it about myself, Jesus is saying, because I was actually set apart, sanctified, and sent by the Father, and I'm the Son of God. Now watch, if you're getting bored right now, let's put the, connect the dots. Remember back in John chapter 20, what did Paul come to write? That Jesus is the Christ and that he is the Son of God? Here it is, right here in chapter 10. He's convincing the world for all time that he's both. Well, anyway, look at this. If I don't do the works of my father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the father is in me and I in him. He's the same in nature and essence. Therefore, they sought again to seize 
uh, him, but he escaped out of their hand. You could go back to chapter 7, verse 30, 44, 859, and they keep trying to seize him. But you see, Jesus was on the Father's timetable, and that's something you need to know. If you have your pen out, write this. Jesus was on the Father's timetable. And the reason I want you to write that out is, see, because for me, it's something that young people, but not just young people, old people like me too, need to know. And that's this. Jesus didn't get caught and then get killed. That's not what the book of John says. Jesus says, I laid my own my life, and I have the power to raise it up again. You getting this? Now, why? Why would I make such a big deal of that? Because if that is true, and it is true, that means you matter. You matter more than you could ever know. We matter to God so much so that he had a plan for his son. The Bible actually says it pleased the father to bruise the son. He came or he was sent to pay the debt that we couldn't pay so that we could have eternal life forever with God and be secure. That means you matter. You were lied to if you went to the public school. You're not some little primordial little micro whatever that climbed out of the, the mud 68 billion years ago. That's not true. It's not true. You were created by God. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. You're not an accident. You have a purpose and a destiny in Christ. See, that's why it's important that Jesus was on the Father's timetable. All right, watch this. And he went away again. And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing at first. And there he stayed. Then many came to him and said, John performed no sign, but all the things that John spoke about this man were true. And many believed in him. Now, folks, we've got two Johns here. John that's writing the book is not the John that's being spoke of, spoken of here. And I got three points, and then I'm going to close, and it'll going to be a miracle because it'll be before noon. <clears throat> and that's this. The first thing is, what a legacy <laughs> John the Baptist left. You know, when you get into ministry sometimes, your heart is to climb the ladder to be better, to do better, to be, be called on more, to be in the spotlight, and to do this. And John just stuck to what the Lord called him to. Just prepare the way for the Messiah. I'm going to stick here. I'm not going to stick you on Hollywood Boulevard. I'm going to stick you out in the desert where there's no people. Oh, thanks, Lord. Uh, you're not going to dress in the modern clothes with the stuff you like. You're going to have like locusts and honey to eat, and you're just going to have these weird outfits and a belt, and it's going to be hot, and you're never going to be comfortable. Okay with you, John? Well, you know, how about Hollywood Boulevard or Colorado or somewhere? No, you're going to be out there, and you're just going to preach the preparation of Jesus. And 
Your life is all going to be all about this. Listen to this, that you must decrease and Christ must increase. That's what your life's going to be about, John. Okay with you? And here's what John said. Yes, I'm perfectly contented with doing that. And you know the story. John the, John the uh, Baptist. And he's off the scene now. He's dead and he's off the scene. And yet the legacy that he left, look at this. And there he stayed. Then many came to him and said, John performed no signs. It wasn't about the miracles, but all the things that John spoke about Jesus were true. Don't you want people to say that about you? When you go, what do you want them to say? I had so much money. Yay. I went on all these vacations. Amazing. I had all this stuff, all the toys. Yay. Or you want them to say everything that they spoke about Jesus was true. Wow. So that's powerful, but I want you to notice something else. Jesus himself went back to the place where he was what? Baptized. Are you, you remember this? And what happened when Jesus was baptized? What did the, uh, the father say? This is my son. What? I'm well pleased. The father said to the son, I love you. You matter. You're pleasing to me. You're not a bother. And Jesus, being fully God and fully man, watch, this is just a few, you know, we're not very far away from him having to walk to the cross, meaning he had to go do the most difficult thing that he was ever going to have to do here on earth. What did he do? He went back to the place where his father had spoken to him. And he wanted to just remember and to think and to be in communion with the father about that, that the father was pleased even as he marched to his death. Wow. And that's what we need to do, folks, is to be in that place where the Lord speaks to us. Where is it? I guarantee you I know one place it ain't with your stupid phone watching Netflix and binging all weekend. It ain't there. We just have to get away and to be at that place where the Lord speaks. And now, thought number three. As he's getting ready to march to his death, one author says this. As he was arranging to meet man, as he was arranging to meet men in all their anger and all their vitriol and all their violence, he prepared himself by first meeting with God. He went and prayed. He went and was alone. He went and thought about the things John had done. Had done and he went out there and he participated. Hello, hello. And he particip- uh, 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 went out there and participated in the things of the Lord, but he prepared himself, oh my goodness, he prepared himself by, it's okay, it's okay, he prepared himself, I'll just yell, he prepared himself by being alone with the Lord and praying. I wanted you to hear some things here. 
There's a document I have I prepared for one of our classes. It's 20 pages long, but 10 pages if you go front and back. And it's an exploration of prayer that I put together. And one of the things that you and I are, need to know is that Jesus had a prayer life where he withdrew to lonely places and prayed. You know that. It's in the Bible. But Jesus told us, when you pray, when you pray, when you pray, Matthew 6, uh, in Matthew 6, 9, this is then how you should pray. I mean, we're expected to pray, not because it's a burden, but it's because we're communicating with the Lord, our Father. The early church devoted themselves to pray, Acts chapter 1. What is prayer? You ever thought about this? What is prayer? The best, listen, the best definition I've ever heard of prayer is right here, O Hallisby. And I've read all the books on prayer, or most of them. But this one, which down in the bookstore by this Norwegian, Hallisby, says this, so simple, takes all the pressure off. To pray is to let Jesus come into our hearts. Prayer is the breath of the soul. To pray is to give Jesus permission to employ his powers in the alleviation of our distress. To pray is to let Jesus glorify his name in the midst of our needs. Man, does that pay, take the pressure off for me. And if you read John 14, 13, we can discover the purpose of prayer. It's to glorify God. Now, think about that. Time out on that one. Don't just be at the end of the sermon like hopefully he's done by noon. John 14, 13 tells us that the purpose of prayer is to glorify God. I don't think of prayer like that a lot of times. You know what I think of prayer, love? Lord, I got a big agenda today, and I need you to take care of it. And what do I do when I'm doing that? I'm sort of glorifying myself. George Mueller said this, the primary business I must attend to every day is to fellowship with the Lord. The first concern is not how much I might serve the Lord, but how my inner man by, might be nourished. Listen, here's what I would say as we close John chapter 10. Is that Jesus is the Christ. He's the son of God. And he wants you to believe on him. And as you come into a relationship with God, one of the things that marks you as a follower of God is you go to the place where you hear from God and you speak to him and you commune with him and you pray with him. And I, in my time as pastor of this little fellowship, if I could have this one effect on us together as a fellowship, I would rather have this effect than any other. And that is, we would be a people of prayer. Let's go ahead and pray. Well, Lord, we come together and we ask, Lord, if there's anybody here who doesn't know you in a real and saving way, we pray that you would tug on their heart today and that they would come up after the service and surrender their life to you. But Lord, you are worthy to be praised. You are the door of the sheep. You're the good shepherd, but you're also the son of God.
the God's son. And Lord, help us to put away our toys and our distractions and our little hobbies that don't mean anything and come and get nourished in prayer with you. Make us a people with a burden to continually be praying to you for ourselves and for the needs of others. In Jesus' name, amen.